Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shay Blani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really privileged to be joined by an old friend and mentor, Dr. Sachin Jain. Sachin is currently the president and CEO of Scan Group and Health Plan. And before that, he used to run Care More Health and also had executive leadership roles at places like Merck. He's published well over 100 peer-reviewed articles in journals such as the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and Health Affairs, and was editor of the book, The Soul of a Doctor. He's also an adjunct professor of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine and regular contributor to Forbes and Harvard Business Review. And if you ask anybody who's ever been in healthcare or at HBS or Harvard undergrad or med school, everyone considers Sachin a friend and a mentor. So you get around Sachin. Thanks so much for being with us today. Well, it's, it's really great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So we know a lot about your background, but for our audience, which comprises mostly current and future health professionals, do you mind telling us a bit about the common themes in all the different roles you've had over the last decade? Yeah, I would say the thing that's been most exciting to me is solving problems. And um, I think I've been attracted to each role that I've had because there was a big problem to solve. One of the parts of my bio that um, was not covered in your very generous introduction was my time in government, where I was part of the founding team at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, trying to build the infrastructure for payment reform for the country. I would say, you know, I've been interested in that theme longitudinally. And in addition to, I think, a, a strong interest in figuring out how we might be able to drive the more rational adoption of health information technology and clinical practice. And, um, you know, I've, I would say, at each step of the way, I've, I've tried to refine kind of the problem that needs to be solved and um, try to take a big swing, sometimes uh, successfully, sometimes not successfully, but it's always interesting. There's always a lot of learning. And uh, I think the real privilege for me has been the opportunity to work with just some incredible people to take on some interesting challenges. Definitely. I mean, again, you worked in government. I think government was your concentration, right, in, in a Harvard undergrad? It was. Yeah, I was a government major. I was one of these folks who would go home for the holidays and I would say, Dad, I'm really interested in government. He'd say, you should do government after you go to medical school. So, you know, I tried to find a way to match my interests with, you know, some of the expectations that I was raised with. I can definitely relate. I still have not finished med school, by the way, when I stopped. You haven't? Oh, my God. Seven years out. I'm still on leave, though, so I keep telling my dad. They're honoring your leave? That's good. They are. It's one of the few schools that that will. And I joke with the team that once osmosis can grant medical degrees, I'll get a degree from osmosis instead. But... So I know we're definitely going to cover government and uh, and obviously life sciences and scan and how COVID has affected everything. But first, I just wanted to get better sense of your current position at scan and kind of what was part of that decision to leave Caremore and join scan. Absolutely. So scan was founded in 1977 by a group of 12 activists, very racially diverse group of senior activists who were tired of the status quo in America around aging. They believe that America was essentially institutionalizing seniors as opposed to helping them remain healthy and independent. And this is a very mission-driven organization, highly successful organization over a number of years. And even though my time at Caremore was really thrilling, you know, growing it from four to 12 states, eventually acquiring Aspire, getting to a footprint of 33 states, I felt like SCAN, because it was a freestanding organization as opposed to a subsidiary and a larger publicly traded organization, gave me an opportunity to, I think, take an even bigger swing at some of the problems that I find vexing as it relates to aging in America. And so we're taking a hard look at reinventing primary care, behavioral health, palliative care, all areas that I think, you know, we're, we're not doing quite enough to serve the senior population. 
and SCAN's got a board that's excited about solving these problems. It's got a management team that's excited about solving these problems. And so it was an opportunity that was too good to give up when it was presented to me. That's pretty awesome because I remember following your career at Caremore and some of the innovations you you and your team spearheaded, like the collaboration with, I think, Lyft. You wrote about that and about how you can get people who don't have transportation to, to Caremore sites. And then also the other really interesting thing was collaborating with the dentist offices. And when these elderly people go, I think I did an interview with you for the American College of Cardiology and you were saying that when they go see their dentist, maybe offering them the you know blood pressure, vital signs, and then diabetes coaching and those kind of things. So uh, is that sort of what led you to get interested in this population in the first place? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the thing that got me interested in, in working in the senior population is a desire to think about a more sustainable healthcare system. And when you think about solving for the healthcare cost problem in this country, it's a lot like what Jesse James said about robbing banks. You have to go to where the money is. And a lot of healthcare expenditure in this country is focused on seniors. Uh, it's Medicare spending. And ultimately, I believe that that spending is inefficiently allocated. Um, we spend far too much on hospital care and specialty care and not enough on upstream prevention and primary care. And so both Caremore and SCAN, I think, have in their DNA this notion of really trying to you know, support seniors and receiving truly holistic, generalist-delivered, generalist-focused care. And, you know, I think when you take a total cost of care view of healthcare spending, there's an opportunity to introduce innovations like the transportation innovations that you're talking about. Here at SCAN, we're very focused on addressing loneliness as a serious problem that I think seniors face. You know, these are not issues that traditional healthcare organizations think about because they're paid on a fee-for-service basis. Organizations like SCAN are paid on a globally capitated basis from CMS through the Medicare Advantage program. And then I think then we're subsequently able to partner with provider groups in a similar fashion and pay them capitation. And I think what that enables us to do is again, think holistically about the total cost of care and how we may be able to allocate spending to places that will actually make a difference for patients. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And on the loneliness epidemic, I know you've uh, collaborated a bit with your former friend from college, Vivek Murthy, who became Surgeon General on that particular topic, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Vivek was very generous. He featured some of the work I did at Caremore on loneliness. You know, we built what I think is the world's first clinical intervention focused on actually addressing loneliness by asking primary care doctors to screen their patients for loneliness and then subsequently connecting them to a clinical program that would reach out to seniors on a regular basis. I think one of the most illuminating parts of that was the profound nature of this epidemic. I mean, there's many seniors who literally don't have anyone other than someone from what was then called the Togetherness Program reaching out to them to check up on them. So when you think about what it looks like to live in America as an aging adult right now, um, there are some profound challenges, one of which really is loneliness. I think that's something that's been exacerbated by the COVID-19 epidemic and some of the challenging rules that have been put in place to protect seniors, which I think in other ways have created this other problem for them which is this problem of, of loneliness. Yeah, that's fascinating. So two previous guests we just had on Raise the Line that I'd love to introduce you to if you haven't met them are our osmosis advisor and investor, Alan Patrikoff, and his uh, co-founder of Primetime Partners, Abby Levy, who is the president of Thrive Global. And there specifically, there is a $50 million fund to specifically invest in organizations, companies that are targeted at what Alan calls the ageless generation. He's 85. This is his third chapter of work. Wow. And so I would love to share some of the things you guys have done, obviously, in, in case there are some startup spinoffs. But 
Um, going to COVID, you know, obviously COVID's affected a lot of things. You've mentioned it's exacerbated the loneliness epidemic. How else has COVID exacerbated or, or changed your business at SCAN? And then broadly speaking, what are some of the lasting changes you think COVID is going to have on our healthcare system? Well, I think, you know, for SCAN, it's showed us that we as an organization could operate just as effectively virtually as we used to when we were operating in person. I joined SCAN on July 1st after we'd already you know, switched over to fully virtual. And I can tell you the organization hasn't skipped a beat. I think that's a testament to the extraordinary planning efforts of the people here, as well as the dedication of our associates. Taking the broader question that you've asked around the healthcare system, I think, Shiv, that the most significant thing that's come out of this is we've proven once and for all that change in healthcare doesn't need to be slow, deliberate, and plotting. You know, I think one of the reasons you stepped away from medical school is you you saw this pace of change. You got frustrated by it. Uh, it's something I certainly have been frustrated about throughout my career. And, you know, I think it's finally shown that when organizations choose a direction and don't get too lost in consensus-driven decision-making and really pick a goal, you can actually move mountains. And um, you've overnight seen the move from you know, in-person to virtual care. Overnight, you've seen just massive changes in how I think people are thinking about the organization and structure and healthcare delivery. That is what we've needed all along. Um, and it took, unfortunately, a global pandemic to get us there. But I think we needed business model transformation. I think you're starting to see a lot of organizations talk about the move to global capitation coming out of a recognition that fee-for-service was not any way to really sustain a healthcare organization in times of great uncertainty like ours right now. And so, again, I think the biggest area of change for me is really this renewed confidence that change could actually happen in healthcare. There's this uh, quote I've been sharing with our team pretty often. Uh, it was actually a Lennon quote. Maybe you've heard it. It's there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I know the quote very well and I think it is a beautiful one for the moment right now. Yeah, we have some very specific examples. We had um, Joe Kvidar on, uh, who you know from Mass General, American Television <laughs> Association. Sure. And he and Michael Gustafsson, the president of UMass, both echoed the two order of magnitude increase that most health systems are seeing in the number of virtual visits. And so, again, you've, you've been involved in so many different parts of the healthcare system, but like apart from maybe solving the loneliness epidemic, capitation models, telehealth, what are some of the other things that we should be thinking about moving forward? One of the things that's exciting to me as someone who kind of grew up in the Harvard medical system, was very anti-pharma for some period of time, and then kind of went to work in pharma through a series of accidents, wonderful accidents in many ways, is this renewed excitement and confidence in the American biotech sector. I think for years, people had this naive notion that we have all the drugs and solutions that we actually need. And, you know, pharma is just developing a lot of Me Too products to gouge the American public. I think that was a broadly held perspective, particularly among a generation of medical students that trained in the years before and the years after me. I'm sure you experienced some version of that narrative when you were at Harvard Medical School. I think that we're now seeing, number one, that we don't have the solutions that we need for all the problems that we face, coronavirus being the latest example of that. And then we're also seeing that the incredible ingenuity of the bioscientific enterprise when applied to solve a big problem, a big hairy problem. And I think that that's good for American society writ large, because I think the negativity around biopharma ended up bleeding into a lack of trust in medicines, a lack of trust in regulators beliefs that started to pervade the internet, that medicines were created to create side effects to then create demand for more medicines, you know, all this so-called fake news around medical care. And I think 
what I'm hoping will come out of this as these treatments are developed, as these vaccines are developed, is renewed confidence in the FDA, renewed confidence in biopharma, because I think we are all going to end up better for the American scientific enterprise. Yeah, I think that's a really astute observation. And I know there were some of the studies showing that biopharma as an industry was kind of rated as negatively as tobacco companies, which always confused me because one is generally saving lives and the other is generally not. And so to have them. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny if you go back to when I was a first year medical student, the year was 2002. And I'll always remember a woman who came and talked about her experience of living with cystic fibrosis. And those were some of the most powerful interactions we had as students. The remarkable thing is, you know, because of the work of Vertex Pharmaceuticals, full disclosure, I own a few shares, not, not too many, just because I believe in the company. But, you know, that disease is no longer a death sentence. It's now a chronic disease because of the tremendous efforts that people like Jeff Lydon and, and his predecessors leading that organization took to actually direct a lot of energy and effort to solve what was previously seen as an insoluble problem. And again, I think that those examples are not known enough. They're not shared enough. And we take for granted much of the scientific and biomedical innovation that we have and just assume it was there all along, not recognizing the tremendous work and effort that actually goes into it. This is not to apologize at all for biopharma for the very high prices of drugs. I don't want to say that that's okay. But I do think that there are certain problems, Alzheimer's is another one, that aren't going to get solved by just using the medicines we have or by creating a more efficient healthcare delivery system. So my personal perspective is we have tremendous opportunities to build a better healthcare system, but we also have an opportunity to improve medical care delivery by getting better drugs into the hands of patients and better vaccines in the hands of patients. No, I couldn't agree more. One other note on another place where I think public perception has changed as a result of the pandemic is the importance of first responders and health healthcare professionals. I know something you invested in a lot at CareMore was not just caring for your patients, but also your staff, right? Making sure that they were taken care of, that there was less burnout. Do you mind talking a little bit about what you think about the provider burnout epidemic that's been going on and, and how we may be able to address that? I mean, this is a profound problem. You know, I had the experience just a couple of weeks ago of going to see my very beloved primary care physician here in town. And she said, oh, you get to see me on my last day in practice. And she was not retirement age. She's 47 years old, former chief resident at one of the big academic centers here. And she just said, I couldn't do it anymore. I was burnt out. And I think a lot of it has to do with the divide that exists between the people who deliver care and the people who administrate care. It is actually the fundamental problem. I think the people who organize and structure care delivery don't know what it's like to actually deliver care. I'll tell you a funny story. When I was at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, our agency was charged with promulgating electronic health records across the country. At one meeting of 130 of our staff, I said, how many of you have actually used an electronic health record? And two hands went up. One was mine, and the other was of my friend, Dr. Thomas Sang, who had run a FQHC in New York City for a number of years. That's a problem, right? When the people who are organizing and structuring a process don't have to live with the process, that's a huge problem. And I think that that is creating the dynamics that are leading to unrealistic work expectations, corporate directives that are divorced from the reality of what it actually is to take care of patients. And, you know, it's something we struggled with a lot when I was at Caremore and Aspire. These were organizations that I think actually were set up more right than wrong. They were paid on a prepaid basis. They were not on a fee-for-service chassis. And so I think 
that ends up being a big part of the solution, right? Is tying payment to clinicians to clinical outcomes as opposed to tying them to how many widgets you produce or how many visits you undertake. And again, I think that is going to be the solution to the problem is to focus on health, not focus on healthcare delivery as a means of compensating people for the care and the work that they do. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that in a second. But yeah, I've read a bunch of your papers, your articles, and some of the most powerful I know are the ones where you talk not as a leader of major health plan or health system, but as a doctor. And that's something I've always respected is that even though you've gained all these positions, you've still maintained a clinical practice throughout. And I remember that really powerful piece you wrote about having a patient who was racist against you. And I'd love maybe if you could comment about, is that what motivated you to stay as a practicing physician? You wanted to not have a gap between administering healthcare delivery and then also being the one to deliver healthcare. So you were in the trenches. And is that something advice you give people? Yeah. I mean, I think if you've completed your clinical training, you owe it to yourself, you owe it to your patients, you owe it to your mentors, your teachers, to your medical school to keep a foot inside of clinical practice. I think it grounds you, it keeps you close to the action. And you know, even as you're pursuing you know, larger systemic changes, the only way that you're going to know if those systemic changes make any sense is if you're actually close to patients and you're close to families and you're close to communities. I'm in the process right now of getting credentialed at our local VA hospital where I'll work as a without compensation attending some number of weekends a year. And you know, for me, it's super important. It's going to be where I'm going to get my energy. It's going to be where I'll get ideas. And it'll be a reality check as I think about larger system changes, because it's very easy to get out of touch. Sadly, I think you get out of touch only a few months after you've actually left clinical practice. I see it happen with physicians who find their way into alternate careers quite often. Ideas that seem totally rational at the whiteboard don't always feel rational when they're actually presented to the front lines of care. And so I think keeping that connection is is super important. Even if your clinical commitment is just a few hours a month, uh, it just keeps you grounded. That's really great advice. And so I know we're coming up in time, so I have two more questions for you. The first was about some of the other macro trends that are happening in healthcare that I think you've been following that are really interesting. Uh, We've been talking a lot with some retailers like Walmart, which is scaling out their health clinics. And so their whole premise is if we're going to do fee-for-service, let's make it super cheap, make a primary care appointment $40 as opposed to $106, which is national average. And then on the flip side, there's also online retailers or online direct-to-consumer healthcare companies like Roe and Hims, which are going public soon. What's your thought on those, the consumerization and democratization or retailization of healthcare? I'm worried about it. And I'm worried because I think what is probably a segment solution, meaning a solution for a particular segment of patients, is because of thoughts of business people are finding their way to be kind of solutions for everybody. And the truth is, is that a lot of medical care, I would say the bulk of medical care delivered to most of the adult population is some form of chronic disease management. And that's all relationship-based. And I'm not sure that one of the kind of key numbers to keep an eye on as these entities become bigger and bigger employers of physicians and nurse practitioners and other healthcare professionals is the average tenure that those individuals actually work at those companies. You know, my experience leading healthcare organizations is that staff stability is actually one of the most important attributes of a healthcare organization because that creates continuity for patients. And Every time you start with a new clinician, you actually hit reset on a clinical relationship between that clinical organization and the patient. Too many healthcare organizations rely on replacement players, whoever shows up on that particular day to take care of a patient. Now, 
if you or I were sick, we wouldn't call up and say, I want to see whoever's available. We would say, I want to see the best person. I want to see the most committed person. I want to see the person who knows me. The problem with a lot of these big box retailers as they enter into healthcare is that that's not even on their list of design principles. And so I worry that we're going to atomize what should actually be a continuous relationship, right? And that to me is a potential source of error. It's a potential source of poor quality and poor consumer experience. One of the reasons that these entities are getting as much play as they are is because traditional healthcare hasn't focused on the consumer experience. And so you could go to your longstanding primary care doctor's office and wait for 45 minutes or an hour. And it's in general compared to other sectors or compared to even how these entities are going to undertake it, it's a poor experience. But it doesn't mean that that connection and that relationship and that context building piece of it actually doesn't matter. And so again, the one number to look at as more and more non-healthcare organizations get into the retail delivery of healthcare is the average tenure of their clinical staff. I think that is going to be the tell. That's fascinating. We should definitely keep track of that. Um, so my last question for you is, you know, I've certainly benefited from your advice directly and indirectly through reading what you've written and other talks you've given. I'm curious, you know, our audience, again, is primarily early stage or current students in the healthcare fields. What advice would you give them about meeting the COVID moment and then moving forward? Yeah, I would say keep your cup full. You know, these are really challenging times. They're unprecedented times. They're going to be talked about in social studies books for generations to come, maybe in, maybe even centuries to come. And so be kind to yourself. I would say have a high degree of forgiveness for yourself. If you're feeling bad, if you're feeling isolated, if you're feeling lonely, the worst thing you can do is to exacerbate it by actually making yourself feel worse about it. You know, have some compassion for yourself. I think that's something that's very, very important. You know, pandemic or not, self-compassion, I think, ends up being something that many of us don't develop. It's not how we were raised in some cases. It's not how we were taught to be. But again, as I kind of progress in my own career, in my own life, I think this notion of self-compassion is one that I think is very powerful. So just be good to yourself, as my mother always says to me. Well, those are some really heartwarming words to part on. So Sachin, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Good to reconnect. And with that, I'm Shibivani. Thank you to the audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>